Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century, join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Everybody, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Listener, it's good to have you here, wherever here is. I'm joined today, uh, this is Matt Tevy, by the way, and I'm joined today by my friends, Ben Sternke. You're looking good, Ben. Thank you. You have a nice glow about you. Just got back from sabbatical, probably yeah, had a good night's got sleep. That, got that sabbatical glow, decent night's sleep, uh, beard glistening. Yeah. No, I don't Look, know if it's glistening, but anyway. looks like you got a air conditioned room there. You're in. <laughs> yeah, air conditioning. Um, although it's beautiful, it's like 72 today, so you don't hardly need it here in Indianapolis. And um, I'll also have you know that I smell good. So oh. that's just neither here nor there. But right. I'm going to text Raina, your daughter, right now, and mm-hmm. ask her to she, creep into your home. room and sniff you. Oh, she's not home. <laughs> All right, my well, wife is home. So, yeah, listener. Hey, we- we all have nicknames, by the way. Did you realize this? What do you mean? Matt, Ben, Christy. What's your real name? Is it Matthew? Oh, yes. Matthew, Matthew Anthony. Jacob. I don't know. Matthew, don't know Jacob, Tebby. Jacob. Jacob. Yep. Jacob. Matthew, Jacob, Tebby, and mm-hmm. Benjamin. Rockefeller, James. Sternke. Does anybody know? Jim, Benjamin James. That's not, a, that's not a bad guess. I'd take Benjamin what James. Is it? Do, do either of you know my middle name? No. Um, I do. I just don't want to like publicly announce it. I know what it, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to dox me. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's Eric. Benjamin Eric. Stern oh, Benjamin Eric. Uh-huh. And do you know mine? Your full Christine. name is Christina. Christine? No. Christine. Christine. Okay. Christine. Uh, Latoya. Rebecca. Henry. So close, Matt. Okay. Lynn. Christine. Lynn. Lynn. I knew that. Christine Lynn. I knew that. All right. It's a little well, bit difficult with the two ends there. Christine Lynn. Christine Lynn. That's good. All right. Well, Chrissy's here, here we too, are. by the, the way. Everybody. That's, yeah, the that's the voice you heard. Um, uh, and uh, we thought we'd do a little bit of a redux or um, a summary slash extension episode uh, trading off of the interview we did last week with Andrew Whited on his book, American Idolatry. So this podcast might make more sense if you listen to that podcast first. Uh, but there was so much we talked with him about um, Christian nationalism and the Christian response to Christian nationalism that we thought it would be good to maybe spend more time in what do we do as Christians, as people who are uh, living in the United States and love Jesus, how do we uh, live our Christian life uh, in relationship to the rising um, threat or heresy or danger of Christian nationalism. So all three. Um, I, yeah, all three. So I took some notes. Um, I want to like just throw them out here for conversation and, um, you know, as fodder for dialogue. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll start by just naming, uh, in the last half of the book, Andrew talks about three idols that compose Christian nationalism. He talks about the idol of fear, the idol of violence and the idol of power. So here's what I thought I'd do. Um, I thought we could take one by one, and I would just give a brief, uh, here's what he means by fear, here's what he means by violence, that kind of thing. And then we can talk through what would it look like to embody not an idol of Christian nationalism, but to embody a virtue or a communal commitment that would oppose it or subvert it or prophetically witness to it, or even undo it. Mm. Come on. Yeah? Yeah. All right. I'm preaching. I think, I think that'd be good. And let me say, just for our listeners, um, why I think this is helpful. Towards the end of that other interview, we asked Andrew, like, what can we do? Um, you know, and how do we talk about, how do we talk about these things with people who seem to be, you know, they've taken the, 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 the wrong pill, that's the red one or the blue one. I can't remember, <laughs> but they seem to be under the spell of Christian nationalism. How do we, you know, talk to them and that, that kind of thing. And one of the things Andrew said that I think is really key and important is that there has to be, in addition to any conversations we may have with people, there has to be some embodied commitment to living in a different way. Mm-hmm. So this has to, this has to transcend. This can't just be ideas that we argue about. 
And we can't just say, hey, Christian nationalism is a bad idea. Here's a better idea. Um, all of that kind of conversation has to be rooted in actual like communal commitments, actual um, embodied concrete solidarities. And so I think that's what we're aiming for in this episode is what are the, what does that look like um, for us? Like, what can we actually do to create those kinds of embodied solidarities um, that, that can bear witness to um, the, the heresy of Christian nationalism and maybe the truth and goodness of the gospel instead. So, yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. Let's get in. All right. The first one is fear. Um, Andrew talks about uh, the ways that Christian nationalists stir up and drum up, create, manufacture, amplify fear as a way of galvanizing and motivating people to take to take up arm to take up quote arms to be on their side to create a to galvanize a. Uh, a voting block, if you will, right? And the fear is um, usually about um, what other people are doing to take away the privilege and the power of white Christians. So we've got um, the state, right? The creeping state taking away our rights and freedoms, um, right? They want to take away your guns. They want to uh, they want to take away um, other liberties that you have, right? The fear of immigrants, right? So we've got, I don't um, want to put a trigger warning on this podcast, but we've got lots of language about the demonization of non-white, non-European immigrants into our country and how they are, uh, lots of slurs are used. Lots of, they're linked with drugs, right? They're linked with crime and those kinds of things. Uh, the fear of economic woes, right? Um, the fear of losing uh, majority status. There's this conspiracy theory, I guess, called the uh, replacement theory, that non-white, non-Christian people are seeking to replace you, um, which has its origins in Nazi Germany, the Third Reich, right? This is the same diseased, ethnic disease logic that fueled and fomented um, the Holocaust. Yeah. So there's this fear, racial fears, immigrant fears, or religious fears, right? Muslims, uh, um, quote, the Jews. You hear a lot of this language. So first of all, let me just say, like, have you guys heard, is this is this a surprise to you or is this something that you're familiar with and you hear about? Christy? Yeah, no, it's, it's every day, every week. Like, people express, use terminology or articulate their fears in the way that they talk about yeah. all of these things. And it, yeah. and it's not just adults. Like, I mean, I have kids and I hear other kids and, and kids talk about it. And I think because they're hearing it from their parents mm. too. Yeah. Mm. yeah, for sure. It is definitely all over the place. Um, and you can tell it's, it's what motivates a lot of, yeah, a lot of action. Um, politically, uh, is people being afraid that they're going to lose something that they used to have in the past uh, that's being threatened, uh, that's being, yeah, threatened in the future. And I, and I think, I mean, ultimately, I, I do think it comes down to, I, I've thought a lot about this, like what is animating this? And it's, it's, be, it's I think it's ultimately like a fear of death that people mm -hmm. have, right? And, and so it's a very, it's a natural thing. I think that's why it's so powerful. It's, I think it's a natural you know, lizard brain, kind of amygdala kind of thing where because we have, we have, because our lives seem to, to us consist in our status among people, our wealth, you know, our ability to, you know, uh, put food on the table, our ability to, um, you know, have, have status with other people, our privilege, our power in society, all of that kind of thing. We yeah. think that's what our life consists in. And so all you have to do to get people really riled up is claim that someone is trying to take that away from them and that this, this deep yeah. instinctive fear of death rises to the surface and people are willing to do all kinds of stuff to avoid death. Hmm. Yeah. It feels like that's what's at stake. I think. Yeah. It's interesting though. You, you see there's like, here's one of the ways, you know, it's idolatry and not necessarily a principled position because you see incredible reliance upon 
stirring up fear, telling people to be afraid, telling people to get angry. And then when a worldwide pandemic hits and people are like, hey, the way that we can Mm -hmm. stave off the rising infection rate is do what doctors have been doing for over a century because they know how germs work and wear a mask. And people decide that they're not going to wear a mask because they believe they they have faith over fear. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's almost a psychosis yeah. attached to this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Something and, that I could something so, that could Yeah. I was gonna say something that could actually kill you is something that doesn't register as a threat. Whereas something that <laughs> has very little chance of killing you registers as like DEFCON five. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's other incongruities or inconsistencies we could name, but um, the point of this podcast, though, is not to just, just elucidate and and sort of describe how awful things are. Uh, it's all too fun to do that sometimes, but um, but to to press on and say if we're not to live in in fear, right? Right. Like church fathers, there's an entire book where a church father is on his way to Rome to be crucified, executed. And he's writing letters to churches as he goes, and he's rejoicing that he gets to share in the sufferings of Christ. So there's a a thoroughgoing, long history that fear is not our birthright as Christians, even in the face of an evil state or an evil empire, that we could could actually come to see our sufferings, if there are any, which is debatable, as, as participation in the sufferings of Christ, right? So then what do we do? How do we as Christians who don't want to be Christian nationalists, how do we oppose or have a counter character to the one that wants to prey upon and use fear to consolidate privilege and power? Well, I was thinking about this, and I want to throw out something for conversation. And it occurs to me that the fear of the state, the fear of immigrants, the fear of uh, you know crime, drug, there's a lot of scapegoating happening, right? There's a lot of other people want what's yours. Yeah? They want your guns, they want your house, they want your way of life. And I've noticed that um, this tends to distance us from those people that we're told to be afraid of. So what I'm proposing is maybe instead of a spirit of fear, we we move towards scapegoated, marginalized, quote, dangerous people with proximity and solidarity. You know, Matt, when we label, the more we're able to label people, the more we cut them off and, yeah. and can say whatever we want about people yeah. and, and, and not even treat them as humans, honestly. We dehumanize people. Um, and so I think this whole moving across the barrier, actually knowing names and faces and loving people, yeah. Yeah. then you're not afraid. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm reminded – been of uh the mosque that is in our town yeah i thought of and that we, too. we moved we moved here right uh right when the the mosque we, we moved here right when sort of the anti-muslim thing was kind of kicking back in i don't know i feel like it was there was a lot of anti-muslim stuff around 9 11 right and that died off a bit but then it, it came back up in the mid uh 2010s and we intentionally moved towards this mosque to befriend them um because i felt particularly I felt I had a particular responsibility as a white Christian to do my part to uh, have proximity and solidarity with them. Um, And they put on this mosque puts on, they have a school with kids and they put on um, get to know Islam sort of events with a meal. And Ben, I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but at least three quarters of this event where the, the kids do a presentation on Islam and a history of it and what it's about. At least three quarters of the event is we don't hate you. Mm-hmm. We're not a threat to you. Mm-hmm. Islam is about peace. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be afraid of us. Please don't see us as your enemy. Like over and over and yeah. over. Yeah. Am I remembering that correctly, Ben? Yeah. I was really struck by that. I, I remember, I remember feeling sad about the, I was like, they obviously know that this is necessary. Like it's a survival mechanism for them, you know, to be so hospitable. I mean, they were, and they were so hospitable, so gracious. Yeah. Um, they fed us like they, they, you know, invited us to, um, 
uh, what's the is iftar? Is that the meal at the end of uh, each day of Ramadan? Anyway, I might have that wrong. Uh, but they invited us to that as well. Anyway, they're very generous, very gracious, very hospitable. Mm-hmm. And part of me was sad because I, I, I figure they are probably like that. A lot of them are immigrants um, and come from immigrant yeah. um, populations in Syria and other places. Um, but also just the fact that their openness, their generosity, their hospitality was also like necessary. It's necessary for them to be very open, very blatant about it um, for their own survival, just because they know how white Western kind of Christians look at them. And so I remember being struck by that uh, as well. Yeah. Our connection there was a, a doctor. Um, yeah. And a few times, I mean, I, I feel like Ben, we haven't done practically anything out of, out of, I mean, yeah. there, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm going to tell you this listener, but it's not a reflection upon what Ben and I have done. Right. Um, our friend Salah said, uh, you, you, I so appreciate the way that you've loved us and you're, and we've reached out a couple times when there's been uh, violence against Muslims in the U S or a bombing somewhere in a mosque, just mm-hmm. to say, are you guys doing okay? Do you need anything? Mm-hmm. And like in tears, Selah has said publicly how much that has meant to him and before his whole mosque. And I feel like that was nothing. It was an, it was an email and like a a quick conversation, but to me it's indicative of how um, uh, fragile and scared uh, these people are and how just like a tiny bit of charity or kindness means the world to them. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah. And I think that, you know, what we've, what we did there in that example is more on the proximity level than the solidarity level. I wanted to, I wanted to talk a bit about both of those words that you use, Matt. I think those are both, they're different, but they're both important. Um, but I think, you know, proximity is, is the easiest one, right? Proximity is like you said, we, we hardly did a thing. Um, and so it's easy to kind of practice proximity. But I think the power of proximity is that like any message now, like if you attend one of those events and you know those people, now if you get another message that's like the Muslims are coming to, you know, bomb bomb us and, and eradicate, eradicate us from the earth, all of a sudden that rings very false, right? It's like, wait a second, I know Muslims. Like that, like what, you know? Um, so I think that's the power of, of proximity. Um, but I, I wonder, I don't know, maybe we could talk a bit about what we mean by solidarity. What would that look like? Um, you know, and how is it different from, from proximity? Do you guys have any ideas? <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> Other than it takes a lot of intentionality for both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you said it's a small thing, mm-hmm. but I bet our listeners are, are thinking, but it also takes intentionality. Yeah. Even for your proximity. Yeah. Is it yeah. you had email, right? right. Yeah. Um yeah. so solidarity is even more so being intentional. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like arm in arm. Like what does that really yeah. look like? So if I could use a, a biblical example, um, when Paul's writing to First Corinthians, just thought of this. So hopefully it'll make sense by the time I get done saying something. <laughs> when Paul's writing to go. First Corinthians, the clock. he's <laughs> he uh <laughs> he's dealing with some factions there. And he's got a famous line um, where he says, I've become all things to all people, so I might win them to Christ. You guys are yeah. familiar with that line. Yeah. But if you back up, what he's describing is, is that he's he's decidedly not, he has decided not to receive gifts or benefaction from wealthy people in the church so that he has to do their bidding. Mm. So he's intentionally kept himself unencumbered from social arrangements or relationships that would put him at odds or prejudiced against some people and privileged to others. So basically what he's saying is I've kept myself free to stand with whoever needs to be stood with in order that they might know Jesus. And so I think we start with um, asking questions about our, what are our commitments and social arrangements? Who do they privilege and who do they prejudice against? You know, how how does how do we arrange and so he's talking about money which mm-hmm. still is one of the ways that that happens 
Sure. But I think yeah. Paul Paul's logic there is I wanted to be in solidarity with all of you. Yeah. Not some of you. Yeah. Yeah. And now a word from a sponsor. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. All right, let's get back into our conversation. I think that part of, you know, part of what what Paul does there in first Corinthians, it's not like a both, like I can, it's not like both sides, both sidesing. Like we sometimes see, yeah. you know, people do like, well, I don't want to be, you know, um, I want to be above the fray and not necessarily throw my hat in the ring with, you know, either one of these sides. But I think the difference there is that it's, it's not like a, for Paul, it, he didn't want to side with the powerful against those without power. And so his, his, his decision, what he was enabled to do was stand with, like you said, those who need to be stood with, which is, which is those without power, those who are being marginalized, those who are being scapegoated and excluded. And so I think that's the, that's the difference. I I think that both sides instinct is, is not an instinct to stand with the marginalized. Rather it's a, it's an instinct to remove yourself from needing to do anything you know, about the situation that you have this privileged perspective from which you can just say, oh yeah, there's, you know, there's issues on, on both sides of this issue, which in effect privileges the powerful because you're not putting your body on the line with those who are being hurt by power. So I think that's, that's the difference. And that, in my mind, that's what solidarity means is like, how do I put my body on the line in such a way that if they're going to come after these people, I'm probably going to get caught up in this as well. They're probably coming after me too. Um, because I'm known to be right. Somebody who is, or I am actually physically there, you know, uh, with the people who are being harmed. Um, and that, that's still very deeply challenging to me, um, to know how to do that in my, in my everyday life, you know, with a church community. Um, so I'll just, that's a caveat. That's, that's what my, that's what I envision when I think of solidarity is just like, yeah, our lot, we're throwing a lot in and, you know, so if they come for those people, I guess they're coming for me too, you know, whatever that looks like, however that looks. So. Yeah. And this kind of, I mean, maybe just a star or something, but I, I guess I just want to name, like, I understand that we are three white people talking about this yeah and we don't have. Um, other people being able to like speak into that. I just want to name that. But I think this also like this fear also brings us to the second um, one, which is violent power, right? This violence, war, guns, hate, persecution, um, this, this worldly power that people are really being harmful, killing people Mm -hmm. because of the power that they have. Um, can you just speak a little bit about that? Um, and kind of, I know Matt, you've kind of been chewing on this. So tell us more about what you think uh, about this. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is Andrew's point that the other, the second idol, like Chrissy said, is, is, is violence. And that includes, you know, war, guns, hate, persecution, and there's violence to inciting fear against people as well. So these aren't neat, clean categories, but, um, you know, particularly we see this in some expressions of, uh, justifying, I mean, I've seen memes going around that um, talk about how if Jesus had the Second Amendment, he wouldn't have been crucified. Yeah. You know, um, so there, there, and, and it's like so, that's like a celebrated meme, right? It's like yeah. what so many, you know? so many problems with that theologically, just all <laughs> kinds of. It's just like how where do you even start? 
Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so violence then is the power that makes the world work. And, mm-hmm. and we see this kind of, I think, I think we see this maybe uh, distilled or um, the quintessential example of this would be like the January 6th insurrection, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't get our way. And so we're going to use violence to, to force, to coerce our way. Yeah. Um, and I, I still think sometimes how close that was to succeeding and, you know, yeah. and maybe not a complete overthrow of the government, but somebody dying. Right. Like, right. You know, like Mike Pence, like dude they, barely they made intended. it out. That's what their intention was. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. then, and so then violence is the logic whereby yeah. we get things done, make things happen. We, yeah. we use force, worldly force to. Yeah. Yeah. You see this, Ben? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think there was a quote recently actually of, uh, um, you know, a politician talking about it, uh, basically openly advocating for, you know, uh, force is the only way to get things done. You know, when, when, uh, when you've got all this, I mean, what they name as corruption, you know, um, that kind of thing. And I, I think it is, it's a really, it's a really tempting idol. I, I like that Andrew talks about them as idols too, because, um, ultimately violence is, it, it's the, you know, inside of the Christian nationalist imagination, the violence is used to a good end, right? We're, we're trying to like make America yeah. great again. We're trying to do yeah. something good here in the world. And the, the, the last recourse, but it still is a recourse is that, well, at the end of the day, we can force people to do what is good and right. And mm-hmm. I think that's the heart mm-hmm. of violence and the power that it sort of, um, and like you said, these all kind of overlap because violence is a form of power, which is um, uh, Andrew's third idol. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And it's a, a lot of our assumptions about how to do good things in the world. Yeah. So let me, so then I thought maybe the antidote or the corollary that helps us um, push back against this is, is <laughs> love. Um, mm. Yeah. And maybe maybe if I can use some adjectives to qualify, I would say the anti-violent power of love. Now I'm taking the word anti-violence from um, the uh, the book that we read, Field Field Guide to Nonviolence. That we yeah. we yeah. read it and we talked about it on this podcast. Yep. Um, and that was one of the forms of nonviolence that uh, I think it was Wernz and Kramer talked about in that mm-hmm. book. Yeah, and what I liked about, yeah, what I liked about anti-violence rather than non-violence is anti-violence seems to be more assertive and active, whereas non-violence is simply not doing something, right? right? Yeah. So anti, anti implies that you're doing something, mm-hmm. whereas non-violence is more of a, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing something. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, but flesh yeah. that out for us a little bit. Like, give us an example of like modern day, twenty twenty three. What this really looks like. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you an example, and um, it's from my friend. I'll call her Mary. Um, Mary's a uh, black woman who's who's uh, married a white guy, and they have biracial kids, black kids who pass. They they're they're scripted as black, and they live in a mixed uh, race neighborhood. And one night there was a group of, I may have told this story, but there was a group of teenagers that were on the corner with music and dancing and they were like, they were drinking, yeah, you know? You know? Yep. And she saw them, it was late, and she knows, she knows that there's people in her neighborhood who if they see black teenage boys doing those kinds of things, they're going to call the police. Yep. And she knows this is a black woman that she can't trust the police. And when the police see a group of teenage black boys, that all hell often breaks loose. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so she is, wants to, she wants to protect these boys from the violence of the police. Um, and so she called a neighborhood mom, another mom that she knows. And she said, Hey, we need to break up this dance party because somebody's going to get hurt. Something's going to, something bad is going to happen. 
And so she said she went out there in her t-shirt and shorts, no bra, and and Mary it, Mary is very well endowed woman. So she's got these <laughs> she's got no bra on, a t-shirt, she's got this other mom, and they go out there with their own music and they start dancing. <laughs> and the teenagers laugh at them, right? Laugh at them and disperse. Mm. To me, this is a creative way of not only policing her own community, but protecting people from violence with with creative anti-violence. Yeah. 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 I I can't remember all the the technical um, definitions. Uh, you know, cause I think it's like a specific is like a research book, wasn't it? And it was like a specific movement, yep. um, with specific feminists. commitments. Feminists yeah, yeah. are, yeah. Um, so yeah. anyway, all that to say, I can't remember the specifics of, you know, uh, what they mean when they say anti-violence, but I, I do like the term as well because, um, you know, one of the other ways that people have sometimes qualified nonviolence is like nonviolent action. They've tried to, they've tried to say like, it's not that we just opt out of anything, Right. I mean, think about like the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was filled with nonviolent action. You could label it maybe as anti-violence. Again, I don't know the technical uh, specifications there, but it was filled with all kinds of action. Right. Where people were prepared to suffer. People were prepared to um, but they were also prepared, trained very well to not retaliate in the Mm -hmm. same kind as the brutality that the police were going to inflict you know, and other people. And I, I think that sometimes when we think of just nonviolence, like the, the refraining from violence, you almost have like the picture of the white moderate, right? In your mind that, that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. But it's the person who's sort of like, hey, I'm not going to go out there and, and like, you know, join, I'm not going to shout at black people, you know, not, not to join our schools. But neither am I going to march, you know, with Martin Luther King Jr. and advocate for, you know, their, their civil rights. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to back out, you know, I'm going to back out of the fight. And so I think that, um, I think that's right. That the, the antidote to violence as an idol can't just be, uh, you know, refusing to participate in the conflict. I think we have Hopping to have out. creative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be creative ways of, uh, yeah. Anti-violent love, nonviolent action that, exposes, you know, the violence of those who are perpetrating it. Um, and also maybe, uh, creates an imagination for a new way, a better way. Disrupts yeah. it. Yeah. But every situation is going to demand yeah. something different. I mean, another example comes to mind of John chapter eight, Jesus confronts people with rocks who are intending to do violence mm-hmm. with nonviolent love, anti-violent yeah. love. Right. Um, and he, so he, one of the, and he, that's solidarity. He puts his body in between, right, the threat and the vulnerable person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he calls the, the threatening people to account yeah. at a great cost to himself, right? It could have ended in his death and hers, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't. Yeah. So I, I think, I think um, we lack the creative imagination for how love works. And it's partly because even if, listener, you aren't a Christian nationalist, fear and violence are such powerful idols of the age yes. that yeah. they have colonized our minds. That's right. They've colonized our minds. Yeah. When I hear Mary tell her story about the creativity she used to protect those black boys from what she thought would be police violence, mm-hmm. it just never occurred to me that you could ever do that. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. And so that's one of 10,000 ways I think my imagination has been compromised Yeah. with, with how violence is. Let me tell one more story about this. Can I? Yeah. Yeah, sure. please. My son wanted to see Oppenheimer. He's 14. I looked up, I looked up uh, reviews and there's a woman that's topless like three times in Oppenheimer. So my spiritual formation, my moral formation cares way more about a woman's breasts being shown on a screen than any violence done on a screen. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, I noticed, it's about the making of an atomic bomb that killed 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. Right? 
But I'm yeah. like, I don't know. There's some breasts. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed like my entire moral compass has been set to ignore yeah. almost all violence except for really gratuitous, disgusting violence. Right? right? Yeah. It's a huge kairos for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's important to to remember and name, you know, that the the fear and violence, and then we'll talk about power here in just a second. But all of those things that we see displayed in Christian nationalism, it's not like, you know, it's not like those those of us even who maybe think of Christian nationalism as like terrible, it's not like those same powers are not at work within us. It's it's not as though we're automatically immune from those things. And so I think, I think that's an important, um, that's an important thing for us, you know, to remember is the people that we see out there who are maybe participating in, in Christian nationalism are, you know, in many ways, just like us, you know, they've just, as we have to learn to name and and see and, and repent of, you know, these, these idols in ourselves as well. What were you going to say, Chris? Yeah, I would, I would go so far as to say, it's not that they're, maybe just not at, like they could be at work in us. I'm, I would say they are at work sure. in yeah. us. Like mm-hmm. we have to be aware, like have our eyes open to, to like the big and small ways that, that fear and power and, mm-hmm. and violence like do show itself. Um, yeah. And maybe, and I think part of the problem is like we can excuse ourselves. Uh, I can, I should use myself. I could excuse myself. Because I can say like, well, I'm not a Christian nationalist. Like I'm not in that category, yep. right? Mm-hmm. But I'm, mm-hmm. I still have fear and power and violence at work in my heart and in my life yes. that yeah. needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, um, let's talk about the third one. Or go ahead, Matt. You can say something else. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. something, there's a thought that's just beyond the reaches of my prefrontal cortex. <laughs> and it's something like what you just said, Christy. I don't know a way to stand as Christ would stand with Christian nationalists unless we can see ourselves in them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you just did. Look, mm-hmm. um, you look, I've got look, I've got a, I've got cancer sort of uh I've got skin cancer with fear and violence and it's all through your body. And I I know how it's ravaging you. And I, and I want this cancer gone too. Mm-hmm. Like that's the kind of, I think, if we could talk about solidarity, even yeah. moving yeah. towards people who are Christian nationalists with opposing them, but opposing the cancer of Christian nationalism that right. also threatens us too. Yes. Yeah. Instead of opposing them. Right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about loving our enemies. I just preached on this, you know, last Sunday. Let us have um, it, Pastor. Hey, um, uh, so it's on my mind, um, is my point, but, um, but yeah, this is what Jesus, this is why Jesus says we love our enemies. Right. And Paul, it was paired in the lectionary that we're using right now. It was paired with, um, Paul talking about in Ephesians, putting on the armor of Christ and mentioning, you know, before he talks about the, the various ways that we fight, which I think are fascinating, you know, it's, we tell the truth. Um, we, we live righteously, you know, um, uh, we're prepared to proclaim good news, right? All of these things that we're prepared to do, we have faith in God to to liberate us and all of these things. But he says our our fight is not against flesh and blood. So, you know, it, it's not against people. It's against principalities, powers. And one way of, a modern way of talking about that, I think is systems. These systems that dominate our imaginations and make us mm-hmm. convinced, for example, that, you know, my life really is, being threatened by all these immigrants coming in or, you know, these Muslims down the street or whatever it might be like there is, I think there is some kind of human solidarity that we need to find with people who are like, yeah, I know what I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to feel the temptation to give into that fear and to protect myself with violence. I get it. I get it. But Hey, there's a better way, you know, let's go, let's go together. I think that's part of what it means to love our enemies is to call them into that from that place of, of empathy and, and solidarity with another human being who's afraid. Yes. We'll be right back. Let's get back to the show. Um, let's go to the third one. The third one is power. Um, and so we've done fear and then violence 
and now uh, and now power. And when when Andrew talks about power in the book, he spends a lot of time focusing on um, how how Christians aligned themselves with worldly power, mm-hmm. how uh, how a you know uh, there's a facet. So here's one artifact of that. Um, when Roe v. Wade passed in the early 70s, Christianity Today ran op-eds about um, Christian positions on abortion. And there's some very famous evangelical theologians who argued uh, not the strict pro-life position we hear today. There was a great variety of opinions about abortion. We've had Mako Nagasawa on our, con- on our podcast talking about yeah. that. Right, but there were a, there were certain shifts in the culture that happened in the '60s that then in the '70s freaked Christians out, having mm-hmm. to do with feminism, and white supremacy, desegregation of schools, threatening to take away the taxes and status of schools that wouldn't integrate, et cetera, et cetera. That then had then there was this con uh, consolidation of power, and a move to like galvanize Christians under one political umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. So in the in the fifties, Roman Catholic. I mean, J- JFK almost didn't get elected because people believed that the Pope was going to be calling the shots, yeah. and the people that believed that uh, weren't Roman Catholics. It was white Protestants who had a, mm-hmm. a virulent anti-Catholic bias. Yeah. So going from like nineteen sixty with a virulent anti-Catholic bias to less than twenty years later, where Roman Catholics and conservative evangelicals were in bed together politically, was a huge shift. A huge shift, right? Yeah. So he talks about uh, in this book, sort of that process of of the politicizing of the Christian faith in a partisan way in the United States for consolidation of power to stand against really what were liberation or civil rights movements, right? Mm-hmm. As a response to that, mm-hmm. and so in in this power section, he talks about white supremacy. Uh, but we could add gender injustice or economic injustice or ableism, et cetera, which mm-hmm. uh, this is a power that wants to divide and dominate, right? Mm-hmm. There's some people who get to have privilege and power and other people who don't. There's some people who get to come into this building because they're stairs. And there's some people who live on wheels <laughs> and can't get in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Christy, I, this is something that happened. This is apropos of nothing, but... Um, Hey, let's go with it. Uh, I walk into our church 30 minutes before we're starting on Sunday, and there's a man in a wheelchair sitting in the back of our chapel, like right in the middle of the row. Okay. Never seen it before, just listening. And I'm doing stuff, and a friend a friend of ours, or one of our vestry members, Donna, I, I grabbed her, and I said, hey, did you go meet that guy over there? She said, yes, his name is Hank, and he is in the neighborhood, and he likes to go into buildings with ramps. <laughs> and he said, "Your our building had a ramp. So he thought he would come into this building and see what this building was about. See what was in here, what was going on. And he, he sat there, he was sat through half our service. He listened to Ben's sermon and split. So I don't know. I don't know Who that knows is. what that was about? <laughs> he was going to go love his enemy. That's right. what he was yeah, man, he was um, like, I can't wait. Can't wait. I'm gonna go do <laughs> um, but but I think for white, affluent, able-bodied people, we don't typically think of access as power. Right. Because we have access to most everything. Mm -hmm. Now, Christy, you've told some of your story on this podcast about how being in male-centric church spaces, you felt a lack of access to power that guys couldn't. Yeah. 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 Even just meetings, you know, where you're in a meeting and people are like, oh, we're able to share our opinion. And I'm like, well, that's only because you're asking only the men to share their opinion. (laughs) This isn't actually open to everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they don't even see that. They right. can't see right. it because yeah. we, because most white men, able-bodied, um, affluent people have access to everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. right. We live in a world the that's culture has been... been built and shaped and normed for yeah. us. Right. Yeah. And so, um, but that comes with a cost because then women and disabled bodies and sexual minorities and racial minorities, they don't have access to the same things we do. Yeah. And they know it. Yeah. Right, because they look for buildings with ramps, mm-hmm. <laughs> which right. I never do. I don't have to. No, not a consideration. <sighs> so what? What's yeah. the antidote then, Matt? Ramps. Build what's lots of ramps. We're gonna build ramps. <laughs> oh. 
everywhere. <laughs> and to, to injustice, more ramps. Yep. I think um, if, if that power is about consolidating and subjugating, I think then the, the antidote is distribution and repair. Mm-hmm. It's just reparation. And these are all of the metaphor, all the metaphors that we spiritualize have real-world material meaning in Jesus' day. Paying back, restoring, liberating, healing, redeeming, forgiving. All of these things are yeah. about real-world injustices being righted. Yeah. And, and so I, I think one of the ways, what, the gift I want to give my white Christian group is to rematerialize these spiritual abstractions mm-hmm. that keep us as we don't have anything to offer the world except for some kind of spiritual escape. Mm-hmm. And I think our spirituality is too important to be relegated to some abstract realm in the heavenly places that doesn't do anything here today. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not discounting new creation, but I actually think new creation is tied to this creation. Yeah. Yeah. There's Sorry. A, there's a thread. Ben, you preached a thread your thing on Sunday. Yeah, you and, get, now you, I mean, and now I'm preaching. Yeah. That's so, we righteous be reparation. going to start preaching. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, I'm all for that. Righteous yeah. reparation. <laughs> what do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it just even in my story, right, with the injustice that I've experienced um, in my life, I'm in a situation now where my boss, I think, is doing reparations. Like, he, he hasn't mistreated me. Mm-hmm. But as a white man, he is doing reparations on my behalf that is mm-hmm. bringing great healing to my heart. Could you mm-hmm. share some of that? Like, what tangibly... What is he doing that you experience as elevating and repairing things for you? Yeah, even as simple things as like, you know, I preached two weeks ago and this past Sunday he preached and then he gives a shout out of like, if you haven't heard Christy's sermon, like this was powerful and the Lord worked in and through her. Yeah, that seems super simple and probably like like silly for you guys to hear. Like that's a simple thing I could do. But the reality of him publicly, like, just being kind to me mm-hmm. honestly brings me to tears. Yeah. Like, it kind of blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what a what a contrast from having your sermons policed and edited. Yeah. To having no editing, no policing, and then public affirmation and esteem. Yeah. 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 I think one thing that's important maybe to point out in this— um, you know, he gave several examples of different ways that power uh, works for people and doesn't work for other people. And maybe the two extremes would be um, white supremacy, which my, the point I'm trying to make here is that malevolence is not required for injustice to take place. So anyway, put a pin in that. And what I'm, what I'm, what I'm noticing is that um, white supremacy, for example, was a, an ideology that was created in order to justify greed and exploitation. Right. So why, why is it okay for us to go, you know, to Africa and enslave these people and take all of the, the resources and use them to build our own stuff, you know, in, in Europe, Europe and, and the Americas? Well, it's because there's, you know, and they created this thing, right? So there's a, there's a, um, there's a perniciousness to it. But there's other forms of power, I think, that are, that are less pernicious. And I think your, your example about um, ableism, Matt, is, is an apt one where like the, the built world for able-bodied people didn't necessarily come from an active disdain for no. disabled bodies. I know. Right? I'm going to build this building to hate disabled people. Right, right. I'm, that is you know, not, this building has stairs because I hate them. Right. And so I, I think that's important to point out because Sometimes I've, I've heard people chafe under the idea that we should be involved in sort of reparations, um, that kind of thing, because it's like, well, I don't hate, you know, disabled people and I don't hate black people. I don't hate, you know, I don't have any personal malevolence towards, towards people. But I think it's important for us to recognize that like we can accidentally or just, you know, in the course of our, you know, living participate in these things just because we don't notice them. Right. So we, we don't notice ramps because we don't need to use them. And, but it still is something that 
um, for us as Christians, as an act of love to our neighbors who are disabled, maybe maybe we maybe we could start paying attention to ramps. Maybe we could de- allocate some of our budget to make sure that um, you know people in wheelchairs can make it to our worship service. Um, I mean those kinds of things. So I think it, it doesn't matter why the injustice exists. I think that part of the call of following Jesus and you know being a Christian is to advocate for um, policies that, you know, include more people in, in the goodness of life in general. So. Yeah. It's good stuff to chew on. Chew on. So we don't, we don't um, take power at the expense of others. We give power to the benefit of others. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and power is not, the, the the ability to control, but it's the willingness to give agency and freedom and life yeah. and flourishing to people. Yeah. Yeah. The power of the person you work for now, Christy, isn't measured in whether or not you do what he wants, but rather it's measured in, are you free to operate in your giftedness unto the yeah. flourishing of you, your family and the church? Yeah. 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 I think I mean one what go ahead, Ben. Yeah. I was just gonna say one last thing that occurs to me is I I think one of the one of the other things that um trips us up, and this this circles us back to fear. Um, I think one of the reasons that people end up, you know, succumbing to these idols is is a fear of is a belief in scarcity. And so there's, there's, in all of these examples, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a belief in abundance, right? And so scarcity of honor might convince your senior pastor, Christy, to say, you know what, I can't afford to compliment another one of these preachers because there's only so much honor to go around here and I need to keep enough of it for myself so I can maintain my position, right? And so, but his willingness to, you know, affirm you, I think speaks to his belief in abundance to say, well, there's plenty of honor to go around. I can give Christy as much as she can handle, you know, and I, I'm not losing anything by doing that. And I think that there's a, there's a belief in a universe of abundance that God has given us that is required for us to advocate for the flourishing of other people. Cause otherwise we're always going to feel like we're losing something. Well, yeah. if you, if you gain something, well, I'm losing something. But if I, if I believe in abundance and if I believe in, you know, God's going to provide for all of our needs. And so that, that yeah. frees us up to, to advocate for the flourishing of everybody. Cause we know, we, you know, we realize yeah. like, well, there's plenty, there's plenty. I'm not losing anything by advocating for your yeah. flourishing. I uh, was chatting with somebody um, this week about how we do preaching at our church, Christy, just since you brought mm-hmm. that up. Yeah. Um, ben and I and Spencer who co-rector preach about 12 times a year each. So that's 36 times, but then there's another, you know, 18 yeah. times that are um, preaching other people. We have a team of about six or seven other people that preach and none of them are credentialed. None of them are in full-time ministry. All they're lay people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard. I've got a lot of things to say, Christy Penley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but, there is some kind of cultural artifact where the pulpit is tied to power in a local church. Yeah. yeah. And if, if Ben were to preach 40 times and other people 12, that would shape us in a way to understand and hold power, I think, that having lots of people sharing the pulpit doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there is a signaling to our community as we share power in that way, that um, you may want us to build this church on a single personality or gift, but we're not doing that here. Right. That is not what we're doing. Right. You are building it on a single God person named Jesus, (laughs) but not on a single person (laughs) named, Uh, you know, Benjamin, James, and Matthew, Anthony, Patrick, yes. I love yes. that you stuck with the, <laughs> your first guess. You, you heard what our real middle names were and you stuck with your first guess anyway. I know. So that's amazing. I'm just going with but what I think it should be. She likes it. Yeah. Yeah. Shows a lot of hot like Christy, LaToya. 
chutzpah. Um, <laughs> Christy Latour. Um, uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think there is, I mean, and that's not sufficient. We're not doing, we're not moving mountains. I don't think, you know, right. but there is something important about that. Yeah. For us. It's one of the ways yeah. that we try to hold power differently. Yeah. Many voices. You you have this mm-hmm. representation of many voices, yeah. which is beautiful. Yeah. Yep. I, I'll just say one more thing about that too. Cause that, it does, you know, I, I have a lot to say too. Um, Matt, Chrissy, a lot to say. I know. Things I'd like to say, right? Um, and so, you know, there's a personal discipline there of, you know, of submitting to this as a, as a way of sharing power. But there's also a belief like that I've come to see there's an abundance uh, as well. Like I've come to actually see that I'm not losing anything by not being able to talk quite as much as I would like. That actually our community and me personally, I benefit from the variety and that God somehow works through over the course of a year, he works through the various voices, the various preachers to give this church exactly what this church needs. I've been, I've been amazed so many times to hear God speak through somebody who had preaching their first sermon, you know, in front of people, things like that, that happen in our church occasionally that I'm just like, this is incredible. You know, it might not be as polished as somebody who's been preaching for 25 years, but it's, that's not what the sermon's for. It's not for polished speech. It's for God's speech. And and they do, they do a wonderful job. And, and our church hears what we need to hear every year. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And there's an abundance in that. It's like, this is great. This is an incredible thing. Yeah. 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 And, and just to be clear, it's our, one of our many attempts to try to creatively undo some of the unhelpful ways that Christians have been formed and shaped to hold power. Right. I think, I think in all of us lives somebody who could or would like want to be the dominant voice in a community, want everybody to listen to them, uh, want people not to argue with them, to fawn over them. I mean, as much as we've organized our churches not to be like that, that still lives in me, which is why I need to be a part of a church that organizes to mitigate against that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I hope, I hope these, uh, three ways, uh, solidarity and proximity to, con- to confront fear, um, anti-violent power of love to oppose violence and righteous reparation working for justice in ways where power has been held unrighteously. Yep. Um, and doing those in discrete, concrete practices and acts. Hopefully this is provoking your imagination to be more creative and feel less um, hopeless yeah, or powerless as you try uh, to confront yeah. Christian nationalism. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, for one, have been helped by this conversation. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's one. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was fun. We haven't done one of these in a while. Yeah. It's just the three of the us. The gang was back together. Just uh, chatting. So... Good, good to yeah. be back together, gang. So, yep. We'll probably uh, be back to a few well, interviews next week, but yeah, go ahead. You think so? Well, I would, I would assume, based on this, based on our, uh, based on our editorial calendar, I think we've got interviews <laughs> coming up. We've got a series coming up on uh, being trauma informed, don't we? A few different uh, interviews. Yes, yes. I got to reschedule somebody so we can get on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But bef- before we go, Christy, I have a question for you. Uh, why doesn't James Bond fart in bed? I, I don't know, Matt. Why doesn't James Bond fart in bed? Because it would blow his cover. Oh, but um, <laughs> that one was terrible. Just That's terrible. a bad one. You know what? That's yeah. really, really bad one. Bad. I do wonder if there isn't a demographic that uh-huh. knows who James Bond is and still finds fart jokes funny, like the the fourteen and a half year old boy listening to us right now is really liked that joke. Yeah. Okay, listen, listeners, if you laughed out loud, please let us know. <laughs> because if there are zero people that let us know, we're yeah. going to can those jokes. Cancel me. Can- yeah, wow. I'm canceled. Threatening to get, cancel Matt. Uh, all right. I, I, all right. Uh, the, the gauntlet has been uh, has been thrown we'll down. See. Yeah, we'll see. 
It's going to come back to bite me. It's going to be like a hundred people are going to yeah. be like, it was awesome. <laughs> we got, we no, got more emails about that <laughs> fart joke than anything we've ever gotten before. So, all right, y'all. I, all right, friends. All right. Peace, y'all. We'll see you see next, you next time. time. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.